and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith, and thank you for listening. David is not here. Uh, he is, I believe at this point, on his way to Sundance, which I would have been if it weren't for stupid old school. But that's all right. School has uh, given us a lot of stuff, including today's episode. But we'll get to that in a moment. But first, uh, we now sometimes I go it alone when David is gone, but I can't do that today because we're dealing with a lot of really interesting stuff that is Oscar related. And so those of you who know my other podcast, More Than One Lesson, which is sadly on hiatus at the moment, uh, you know about the little sub-series, the mini-sode series, The Best of Pictures, uh, in which my co-host Josh and I uh, talk about the various best pictures throughout the years. And so I thought, well, we're talking Oscars. Might as well bring Josh over. Josh, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing good. Josh Long is your that's name. The, that's the last name. I meant you to say, it. yeah, sorry yeah, about that. People were wondering, I'm sure. Listeners know you, all right? When I say Josh, they say, how high? <laughs> <laughs> that was a dumb joke. I'm, yeah, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> they might. You don't know what people say. They might. That's true. And you do give the impression of being high most Just of all the time. The time yeah. Stone Cold Sober, though. That's mm, you. Yeah. But uh, old Sober Josh, that's what they call you. Boring, Josh, is what I meant to say. That's what they call <laughs> that, it. That is what they say. Uh, but anyway, okay, so we do have a guest, but before we get to that, we uh, we are going to, uh, I'm going to talk about our sponsors a little bit. This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for, oh, see? There's a change here, and I'll get to that in a moment. Uh, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. So, as we said last week, there's a reminder that Mubi will be releasing uh, Philippe Garel's new film, Lover for a Day, into theaters. Right now, it's in New York, uh, playing at uh, the Film Society of Lincoln Center, and it will be opening in Los Angeles on the 26th. Named uh, one of the top 10 films of the year by the famous French film magazine Care du Cinema, uh, Lover for a Day is currently playing or will soon open in Pittsburgh, New Orleans, Baltimore, Miami, Austin, Santa Fe, Oklahoma City, and many more cities around the country. Just go to loverforaday.movie.com to find out more about this film, including where else it's going to be opening. All right. Now there's a little hitch earlier, and listeners who know my uh, my movie pitch might figure out why. So here's what I'm going to say: Movie has recently raised their prices. As you know, in talking about Lover for a Day, they've branched out into distribution, theatrical distribution, and so as a result, their prices have gone up. They are now it is now eight ninety nine per month which is why it is so important for you to get your first month for free. Go to Mubi.com slash Battleship and you will get one month for free. Uh, so, And then once you've had Mubi for a month, look, you'll just be hooked and you'll pay whatever it is they want you to pay. <laughs> maybe not. Maybe that's a <laughs> You're stretch. You're on the hook. Maybe that's a stretch. Um, but uh, so once again, just go to Mubi.com slash Battleship or click on the Mubi ad at BattleshipPretension.com. Also, don't forget to check out Tweaked Audio for quality earbuds and a variety so I, of... I was hoping maybe I'd get to do one of these one of the other because david always does one of them but yeah but i wrote this for but me i don't know it all so i'll just just you tell me what the product is tweaked audio earbuds all right yeah those are those are good earbuds thumbs I up have, i have some from do you actually yeah i do hey yeah. all right thumbs up from josh there you go what 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 more do you need to hear 
Well, I mean, they probably need to hear the rest of this ad here. Um, So uh, they look great. They sound great. I have no doubt that David listened to this, uh, to his tweaked earbuds on his way to Sundance while I listened to mine on the bus today. And he's like, "Get the don't let that Josh guy come yeah. back." <laughs> uh, but regardless of where you're headed or how jealous you might be of where your friends are headed, Tweaked Audio has, has you covered. And if you use the offer code Pretension at checkout, you'll get one third off the cost of your Tweaked earbuds and no shipping charges. So head on over to TweakedAudio.com and use the offer code offer code Pretension. All right, now now that's out of the way. Uh, now that we, you know, have gotten the commerce out of the way and we can talk only about just love of film, and that's just what the art. Oscars are all about. <laughs> um, so, okay, uh, listeners, you know that uh, I do this uh, this uh, little sub-series. This is going to be, the, I believe, the fourth one that I do. Uh, it's the BP Masterclass, in which I bring on people that I met uh, at school, whether it be faculty or fellow students. And uh, I was at, what was it, uh, TV History that you and I were in together? Yeah, that, I, that seems right. Okay, maybe. so that sounds right. So it's been about a year since yeah. uh, you and I were actually in a class together. But uh, but yeah, and it was right around Oscar time. And so mm-hmm. the topic of the Oscars came up, and my guest today uh, had a lot of fascinating things to say uh, that I thought the listeners would enjoy. Uh, but I also recognized, like, hey, would you like to come on the show in a year when we can talk <laughs> about the Oscars again? Uh, but anyway, it's Monica Sandler. Monica, how you doing? Hi, I'm very excited to be here. I haven't done something like this before, so this will be an interesting experience for me. And, you, and, you know, uh, a peek behind the curtain here, you seemed a little bit nervous, but you've also given big presentations to people. Uh, how is, that seems like it would be more nerve wracking. Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, it depends on the climate. Like, this is, I'm going to chill when you said that, because last year I... And I was a bad presentation. I'll pretend, won't pretend like that. Um, I presented at this conference, and right in front of me was like it was on. I was presenting on censorship and like the world authority on like censorship, who I've talked to before, but like it would know if I had said something factually inaccurate. Was like oh. sitting in front of me, and so like the <laughs> and then like, he would stop you from saying it. He would censor you. Is what and, you're saying? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like he was gonna. They were going to open to discussions and he was going to stand up and be like, um, Monica Sandler is not a, a real historian. Everything <laughs> you've said here is wrong. Um, so that presentation, like I literally did not look up from my notes or acknowledge the audience because I was like, I'm just going to look right at one person and freak out. Um, and you're not nearly as intimidating as him. So oh, that's all right. Good. Well, I feel like I'm not doing my job then. Um, I knew I should have, shouldn't have taken yeah. my sweater he's, off. He's not intimidating uh, either, but in the moment. Sure, sure. And that's the that's the thing about ac- academia. Like uh, listeners know that while I'm involved in it and I eventually want to work in it, I don't enjoy it really very much at all. Um, You're going to take it down from the inside. Yeah, that's the plan. Uh, but all, uh, all I'm doing, really going to do... It's doing a pretty good job of doing it itself. It doesn't need any help. Yeah. Uh, I, will, I will probably just torpedo my own career. Um, but... Yeah, all right. Uh, but yeah, the idea of like peer review, which I understand is of course very important. If you're going to be like an authority on something, uh, you need the people that are already authorities to kind of approve that. But, uh, it sounds 
so stressful and so nerve wracking. And that's one of the reasons why when people say like, oh, you should get your PhD. It's like, are you kidding me? I could barely, <laughs> I could barely get my high school diploma without uh, going insane. Uh, and my master's like, this has been uh, a lot of fun, but a lot of work as well. And so that, uh, that is more than I can handle, but it sounds like you've, you've got it worked out. Uh, I'm, pretty much tired all the time <laughs> and I'm pretty much working all the time. So I uh, sure that's figuring it out, I guess. <laughs> oh no. All right. Okay. <laughs> tired all the time, working all the time. Yeah. All right. So I, there you go. I will keep that in mind. I have a dog. That's, that's my life. <laughs> What's, that's the dog's name? What's the dog's name? His name's Theodore. Theodore. All right. Yeah, or he goes by Teddy. I'm not going to talk okay. about my dog he anymore. Teddy. Okay. Yeah, he does. So you're not going to talk about your dog anymore. Oh. See, here's the thing, because that's now all I want to talk about. Well, now, okay. Now, I guess. Did you did you do you just like the name Theodore? Did you name him after Theodore? Something He's like, Mr. Roosevelt. He's got named it. after Theodore uh, Roosevelt. Right. Okay. I had a childhood dog that was Winston, or thought I named Winston after Winston Churchill. So it's just like <laughs> okay. leaders I find thoroughly entertaining yeah. and enjoyable. So there we you have go. very Mr. charismatic and headstrong leaders. Yeah. Yeah, uh, exactly. I, in the future, if I get a girl dog next time, I'm going to name it Eleanor. So I've already got it right. planned out. There you go. Um, <laughs> After Eleanor DeGeneres. So, okay. That's, I'm sorry. <laughs> World everybody. leader. Um, but uh, out of curiosity, before we get into the, the topic uh, proper, um, have you seen Darkest Hour? No, I haven't seen it yet. All right. It's, uh, I'm interested, as a, as a Churchill fan, I'm interested to know what you might think. Uh, there was a movie that came out earlier this year called Churchill, um, starring Brian Cox, and the movie is not good, but his performance is great. Um, and then Darkest Hour, I thought, is a perfectly fine film, good performance. Uh, but yeah, it's, Churchill's one of those figures that's like, so many people have played him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when you mentioned the darkest hour, that's actually why I haven't seen the darkest hour is mm. because like looking at the previews, Gary Oldman doesn't look like Gary Oldman. And that scares the crap out of me because <laughs> like actors, they're supposed to become the characters, but you still like look at them and they physically resemble right. themselves, but he doesn't anymore. Mm -hmm. And that really weirds me out. And I don't know if I can handle it, which is why I haven't gotten to the movie yet. <laughs> yeah. I can Pe see that. People should look like the people that they are, even when they're being someone else. It's like some sort of bizarro version of Gary Oldman. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like uh, if he let himself go, you know, and <laughs> even then. Well, and it's, and that's, that's, uh, listeners also know that's one of my big complaints about Darkest Hour is that like, you know, if I were British and a larger gentleman, uh, the one thing I can cling to is that given enough time, and I'm going to play Winston Churchill. <laughs> Certainly not enough other people have, but like, that's the one thing I can cling to. It's like, Hey, look, as an overweight actor, I'm probably not going to be the lead very often, but there's always Winston Churchill. <laughs> and it's like, Gary Oldman, really? Like, Skinny and they got to pat him all up, you know, up. it's like, okay, well at the very least I've I can, uh, I can play, uh, Alfred Hitchcock, what? Anthony Hopkins. Come on. <laughs> there's well, Jimmy had, clicking uh, them up, you know, what's the, uh, uh, the crown has, uh, John Lithgow, John playing. Lithgow. Yeah. yeah. He's but not it, heavy or British. That's true. He's he's almost honorably British, I'd say. Like he just has a, a certain quality to him. And he's played about him. he's played FDR in the past as well. Has he really? There's a, a a TV movie when I was a kid that was all about the shaky relationship between Churchill, Roosevelt, and Stalin. Mm -hmm. um, Churchill was played by Bob Hoskins, 
larger British actor. Okay. Um, Stalin was played by Michael Caine and then Roosevelt was played by, uh, John Lithgow. So wow. that's, you know, he can play very patrician, um, Americans and then, and then Brits. But, uh, so, okay. But enough of that. We got to get to know you. Where are you from? Um, I'm from, uh, the Thousand Oaks area. I actually lived when we were, when I was a kid, like really little in the general area around here. Um, for, till I was like six, okay. so I vaguely remembered. I was off of Nordoff, so was oh like, yeah, all oh, right. Oh, this looks familiar. <laughs> um, but then I lived in Thousand Oaks, so I'm just a Los Angeles type person. Okay, all right. <laughs> um, and so, uh, what? Okay, so you are getting your PhD. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, what What prompted you to pursue this as uh, as a as a profession? Um. I mean, I don't, it's, it's really hard to, to like articulate that. I have a, a like a logical, it, it's sort of a logical progression was I had a period of my life where I had some downtime and like, I didn't know what to do with it. And I spent it reading about like labor law and unionization <laughs> processes, um, which actually were all connected to the Academy Awards. It started with the Academy Awards hmm. at its core was like, I, I had this free time. I didn't know what to do with my life. And like, um, it was award season and I was like, award season's crazy. Why is it that way? And then <laughs> I started reading history books and I was like, oh, the early awards are connected to unions. Um, I should learn all about unions. And okay. then I kind of paused and was like, well, if this is what you do with your free time, like you, you need to start making applications to PhD yeah. programs. <laughs> I, okay. So you arrived at unions. You didn't simply say, I'm bored. Well, look, there's only one thing I can read about and that's unions. Um, but it started in very much a Hollywood thing. Like, Hey, it's Oscar season. I'm going to look into that. Oh, look where I went. Yeah, and I'm talking, mm. Oh, I was thinking, Screen Actors Guild, yeah. you know, those, the, the fake Hollywood unions that we, we talk about. <laughs> Josh, you're in a union. I am in a fake Hollywood union. <laughs> what is, which one is that? The Directors Guild of America. The Directors Guild oh, of America. I have, I have a paper that I'm eventually going to finish sometime that's on the early formation no, history cool. of the Directors Guild. Pro um, or con? Um... <laughs> Somewhere in the middle. Oh, okay. It depends on the Sounds day. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a murky gray area. Fair enough. Not unlike the director's guild itself. Yes. Oh, yeah. As is much of history once you get too far into it. Yeah. I mean, any any organization that nominates Martin McDonough for best director for uh, three billboards is I'm, suspect, yeah. I'd say. Um, I, I think some, I was talking with somebody recently and they were like, I think people just didn't see that movie and they know that it's about a woman who is like trying to right a wrong that's been done to her family. And yeah. they were like, Oh, I like that idea. And it's and, got a good cast and all right. that. Yeah. And so like on paper, it should be good in reality. Yeah. It is a mess. Yeah. I didn't understand that movie. Like literally like I walked out of it and being like, I don't, I don't know what I just watched. Yeah. Yeah. This movie. <laughs> I think I have, uh, I didn't like it at first. Um, there was no real talk about it, when I saw it, because I got to see a critic screening, I was very excited about that. I was so ready for that movie to be my favorite movie of the year, because I, I did not see Seven Psychopaths, but I loved In Bruges, and that and it does have a killer cast, Three Billboards. I'm a big fan of Francis McDormand and Woody Harrelson and Sam Rockwell. And then that's the movie I saw, and I was like, what is this? I don't, there are moments that I like, but 
it's it's just an absolute mess and the more i think about it the less i like it which is funny because the longer it's out the more awards it gets <laughs> and you yeah. know someone said it could actually win best picture oh my gosh i'm gonna be so angry if that and happens. this year it could because everything's really divided there's no clear front runner for best picture um but that's uh but you know what i will say now that i'm thinking of it and we're talking about awards uh listeners if you, if you go to battleshippretension.com the BP's uh, uh, nominations have come out. Uh, and so in many cases, it's kind of the movies you expect. Uh, but there's a couple uh, stray nominees here and there that are very excited. Kirsten Dunst, supporting actress for The Beguiled, and mm-hmm. uh, Barry Keegan, Kogan, uh, for Killing uh, of a Sacred Deer. And so... I, I really, in my head, thought you were going to say Killing of a Chinese Bookie. Oh, yes. And I, I wouldn't I, have blinked if you had said that. Uh, that's like, what the pause was. <laughs> um, make sure you said the right yeah, movie. But, uh, but yeah, so head on over to BattleshipPretension.com and check out the, the BP's award. And then the actual ceremony is going to be different than it has been in the past. And we will tell you more about that uh, as things develop there. We already know what we're going to do, but we're just <laughs> going to tell you later. Um, so, OK, so you it's so interesting because already. You wanted to look into the Oscars and you very quickly arrived at the idea at, at unions that like it starts with that, which is already, it's not necessarily counterintuitive, but it's not a thing that I would immediately think of. So I'm going to say the floor is yours. <laughs> How um, do unions factor into this so much? Um, so the Academy and its, its early formation, um, one of its primary function was to be essentially a fake union for Hollywood officials. It was kind of a way of of hindering unionization processes that were occurring during that period of time was instead we have this organization that will allow people to communicate directly with, about with producers and with employers about you know what kind of contracting they want and for individuals to file claims mm-hmm. um, directly against their contracts and their producers and things like that. And that there would at least be a forum. And prior to that time, there was just nothing and you, there were no pretty much no standard rights that were existing at that point. So the Academy was kind of supposed to be like the fake, we're throwing you a bone, please don't unionize, um, thanks, <laughs> isn't this great? So in theory, um, it was kind of like a board where... Mm-hmm. people would come and, and say like, hey, these people didn't pay me, do something about it. Yeah, and, something along those lines. It's a bit more formal. And I mean, there were organized divisions and division meetings, and the Academy did successfully have the first um, actor's contract, uh, hmm. standard contract, and the first um, writer's contract, and their, fir- their like brief foray of being s- people being okay with them. How long um, ago was that? That was 1927 to 1933 was the period where people were willing to work with the Academy. The division existed until 1937. Um, But really, all of this starts, at least the division of labor that's occurring there is um, in 1926, the end of the year, um, people, the stagehands, lower division workforce unionized successfully into IATSE. Mm-hmm. And then there's this sort of actors' equity. Other larger unions are trying to organize other divisions of the workforce. And the hope is that the academy will serve as their own space for creative labor. So that way you hmm. don't have the same level of control that's occurring. Um, Hollywood unionization it gets pretty crazy um, as you go into the 30s. Um, and the academy kind of ends up being like the 
I hate every, everyone hates the Academy <laughs> in the middle of hating each other and screaming at each other and stuff like that. And a lot of it comes down to some of them. Um, there's one Academy Awards where people are like boycotted the event. So literally screaming at, about the Academy Awards wow. in the midst of it. Um, but basically the first five years, is, the Academy is very much in line with like what workers' rights are. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really interesting component that people may not be thinking about when they're when they're thinking about the Academy Awards. They're you know, they part of what makes the Academy Awards have value is the fact that everybody in Hollywood wants one. Mm -hmm. That there's a reason for people to to strive for it, that kind of goal in mind. Josh, if I gave you if I offered you an Oscar right now, would you take it? Uh, yeah, sure. All right. And I'd be like, oh, this thing's heavy. Um, <laughs> yeah, did you know those things are heavier than they look? Okay, sorry, go on. No, um, I mean, it, with that in mind, actually, like, just the value system, um, and in line with kind of what I'm saying about, like, the fake union, things like that, um, I have I, my list of quotes that I brought. <laughs> um, this one, this is, like, my favorite Academy-related quote ever. I should say it's um, from Louis B. Mayer and um, talking about why the awards exist. And he says, I found that the best way to handle employees was to hang medals all over them. If I got them cups and awards, they'd kill themselves to produce what I wanted. That's why the Academy Award was created. Um, so hopefully that gives some perspective on, on value systems. But um, Mayer is often accredited with the idea of the awards. Um, and of the Academy, it kind of gets looped into being his baby. It's a larger spectrum of that, but like in terms of you know aggressive producers who wanted to subdue certain divisions of um, Hollywood cultural issues at the moment, uh, Mayer really fa felt that the Academy could be the forum for that kind of space. Um, so was it mostly like producers and studio heads that were kind of the the people of the Academy, or no? Um, in terms, I mean, the Academy itself, like you have this undertone of um, the producers who are in, in charge of it, but like the main founders, in addition to Mayer, are like Mary Pickford, um, Fred Niblo, um, Douglas Fairbanks is the first president. So there is a large mm -hmm. spectrum and people are, you know, kind of trying to embrace the idea of it. It's their first attempt at having some element of bargaining power mm -hmm. and not necessarily everyone is thinking about unionization the way you might think that that's occurring. Most of Hollywood had to kind of buy into the idea of that, especially when you have something like actors who the more successful ones who can yield some kind of benefit probably don't have as much of an interest in it because, mm -hmm. well, I, why do I need a standard contract? If I have a standard contract, do I have to get paid less? That kind of thing. Um, and that's a huge issue with the Directors Guild when it forms, which was the last of the the Hollywood, the, the unionizing efforts in the 30s. They were the last organization to, for, to form, and a lot of it was because like major directors didn't really want to push buttons into messing with their own contracts, that kind of thing. How How well known at the time was this attitude about like, okay, we, we started this to just give people a pat on the head instead of more money, um, or more opportunities or whatever um, it is. Like how many, was that a common, did people know that? Uh, or was that just more of kind of the stuff that producers had I mean, I think that I'm talking like in this like fizzling maniacal thing in the background. I don't think okay. that's really <laughs> like, 
what was occurring in any capacity. I, I mean, I think someone like Mayer behind the scenes that this is you you study people, you you learn their thought process and you kind of know like he's bottom line money and what is going to be the most efficient way of right. doing things. And that's why he does things okay. basically. And like, if you want to understand his psychology, that's what you're kind of going to get as an answer. And like, you get to know people though. Um, but I mean, the Academy's foundation when it was being created, I think was totally with it with the best intentions attached to it um i mean in addition to the the labor forum which you know was ultimately a failure it was the academy had two functions forming and the other one was to basically be like the hollywood publicity space Hmm. uh, which Hmm. is to say that like it was like make hollywood look better on whatever forum you need to. So in the founding in 1927 was also the same year that the Hayes office produced their first list of right. censorship elements. Mm-hmm. And the Academy, like leaders of the Academy and like Douglas Fairbanks kind of served as the figureheads talking about like we're cleaning up Hollywood and trying to present the best, most favorable images possible. And that was what the Academy is coordinating. And so, you know, they're supposed to be this middle ground, I think between, you know, Hollywood and the world and Hollywood employees, that kind of thing. And the, the employer. Um, And in that way, like the Academy Awards are kind of this perfect balance of what the, um, the original agenda was for the Academy to exist as, which was like make Hollywood looks better and like appease the workers, you know, I was, like I how was, we're talking about. <laughs> I was going to mention the timing is interesting mm-hmm. that like the, the Academy Awards, like start to really come into their own right around the time that the Hayes Code shows up. I mean, like within a few years mm-hmm. and the idea of like, we are respectable and look, we are prestigious at the same time. Like we are, we're okay. Uh, as far as the public goes, although I guess how were the Oscars well known or were they, uh, or were they mostly industry? I mean, the first year of the awards were a small banquet event. No. However, I mean, in the sense that like, were the Oscars well known, like instantaneously you win an award, you slap that on a poster because that gets you PR (laughs) and like, it doesn't super matter what it is in that respect. But like, this was a way of, you know, rewriting runs for a lot of movies during that period of time. And as, as a nine time (laughs) podcast award nominee, I absolutely know what you're talking about. (laughs) Incidentally, those awards mean nothing. (laughs) Uh, If you mayor would argue the same for the Academy award. Um, but basically what, what's, what's occurring there is just, make Hollywood look in its best possible way. And right. you mentioned like the art, um, making Holly America film into art was kind of a constructed process that was occurring, yeah. um, in general during that period of time. There's, um, a book by Peter attorney that's specifically talking about like Hollywood producers investing in like educational curriculums or investing in like MoMA to like build their own film collections to incorporate film into the, as a medium into other works of art, that that would reposition how people were thinking about the movies that were coming out. And, and that, that was a concerted effort um, that was occurring exactly at that period of time. And mm-hmm. the Academy Awards, like, full in full force kind of take that on 
um, that Hollywood just decides to do it itself, basically. um, And they can control the image that's coming from there. It's amazing to think how much was happening then in film, like in the late 1920s. You've got like all of this stuff with the publicity and and a, a general sense within the country, at least, that uh, Hollywood is bad or evil or, or mm-hmm. at least, you know, decadent. Yeah, something yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got these throughout the country, there's labor disputes. And then that's starting to seep into Hollywood and people wanting to uh, to, to unionize. And so you have the Academy forming for that. Then you have, uh, uh, you have like the, the advent of sound is happening at the same time. Yeah. People uh, are starting to look at film as an art form rather yeah. than just a, and it, in terms of like the labor office, um, the Academy did a lot of the training for employees and transitioning to sound. So they really? are instrumental in the middle hmm. of all of these different changes that are happening in Hollywood hmm. as this like organization specifically for the workforce there. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, so I mean, that's why I didn't want it to seem like something so negative coming right. out of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, it certainly turns or the public the public <laughs> yeah. perception of and the industry perception of the academy and its entire basis for existence completely um, f- falls apart and goes into exactly how I was talking about it before in 1933, and it's it's then referred to as the company union. And everyone hates the Academy straight until 1920 or 37 when they actually Hmm. withdraw from labor officially. Hmm. Um, Basically, what happens is in 1933, Roosevelt takes office. He closes the banks. That's one of his first moves that he does. During that period of time, um, producers meet and then meet with employees and say, we have to, like, issue this massive scale pay cut. Hmm. And that's affecting everyone in the industry. And the people in IATSE do stage a walkout. And within a day, um, no wage cut for them. And everyone turns to the academy. Is there something? And nothing can be done because the unit that exists there, there isn't a full, you know, there isn't a collective bargaining force. There isn't a really organized effort to be able to strike the way that there would be with the full union, that kind of thing. They're not a collective that's been united under a certain goal frame. They're just like a bunch of workers that don't really have any contact with each other in any kind of productive manner uh, based off of how the, the academy's divisions were at that point. And also um, something in the background here I just didn't even think to bring up. Um, the Academy membership has always been by, like, the Hollywood best and brightest. Right, yeah. Um, so when you're talking about who's a division of every, yeah. who's actually a member of the Academy, it's like the so-called best of the best. And certainly other people could make file claims at that period of time, but in terms of actual impact, um, the Academy is just not representing the the masses. Right. If you're uh, like a directly. key grip, yeah. you're not one of the best in the brightest. Yeah. They're, yeah, they're, they're, they're tr- saying they are, but there isn't really a direct connection with those mm. types of individuals yeah. um, in terms of you know properly being able to have a membership and a say in how things are conducted at that point in time. So 1933, pay cut, everyone gets really, really mad. And within the year, you see the formation of the Screen Actors Guild and the reformation of the Screenwriters Guild. Hmm. They had been a social organization prior to that time, but they turned themselves into a union. Um, and that's when the Hollywood unionization effort is. And the kind of main agenda in the midst of trying to organize is like, if you want to be part of SAG, you have to withdraw from the Academy. Hmm. Oh, and wow. like things plummet. And basically like everyone hates 
them from that point on <laughs> until they withdraw. So, I mean, it makes you wonder like, well, how did the, how did the Academy continue? I mean, obviously it was a completely different thing, but how did it as a concept or as an mm-hmm. entity, how did it manage to survive that? Cause I was thinking about that. Like even now, I don't even know exactly what it is besides that. It's the group of people who decide on the Academy Awards. Yeah. And- I kind of mm-hmm. feel like that's all they are, but I'm sure that's not the case. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, I mean, they're a non-for-profit organization and the Academy, I mean, if you're depending on who you're reading, there's one individual who claims ownership of why the Academy exists and it kind of, he likes to claim ownership of a lot of things. That's Frank Capra hmm. um, oh, yeah. kind of taking on the Academy. He, he claims um, the same thing about the DGA. I know yeah. he claims like yeah. the, he started well, it. I mean, basically. if we're going down this road, it, I do have an <laughs> epic Capra um, Academy Award tie-in with the DGA. And, um, but Frank Capra becomes president in early 1935. It's or more mid to late 1935. It's after he wins um, Best Director and best picture that year for it happened one night. Yes. yes. Yeah. Thank you, Brian. It happened over <laughs> the cuckoo's nest, right? I like, yeah. um, <laughs> love my Capra films. Love Capra as a figure. He's an interesting individual. Um, so Frank Capra becomes president of the Academy during that period of time. The Academy is in um, complete financial crisis. The, they had existed prior to that time as being partially funded by studios and, of course, membership dues. And that's still how the Academy exists. A lot of the ways is membership dues, those types of things, and, like, you know, personal funding and the profits from the um, television broadcast, that kind of thing. That's how they function in more of the contemporary sense um, as, as they're whatever, you know, they're kind of, we put on social events and Mm -hmm. we have an amazing archive that I love very much and they're nice to me. Um, (laughs) And um, I digressed. What was I saying? Oh, I was talking about the, um, the Academy and the Uh, Capra Capra and the Academy. Um, So he claims at least that he was like for the Academy award ceremony that he was like out of pocketing uh, and like calling up donors to be like, we have to keep this happening, that kind of thing. Hmm. Um, But like during the 30s, if you're talking about like who's doing work, there's like um, two people, one of whom is not being paid, Mm -hmm. one thing, which is um, Margaret Herrick and her first husband. And it's mostly just Margaret Herrick. Just, Hmm. Just she's like kind of running everything and there isn't really a location so to speak, but they are still putting out events and organizing uh, or attempting to organize the event, but kind of in the middle of all this, this, we hate them. Mm -hmm. The awards still do really well. People still show up to the ceremony in 1935. Um, it, and it, that kind of thing. And it gets a ton of publicity. And so there is seen as this like huge value system in Mm -hmm. what the awards can, can do. Obviously like the publicity thing that can be attached to it. Um, and the mindset is very much like we hate them as an organization, but we love the Oscars right. and everyone can see like, depending on where you are, you love the Oscars for a different reason. So if you're a producer, you love the Oscars cause now your movies can, you know, get slapped with PR campaigns and yeah. things like that. And if you're, if you're 
an employee, you very quickly bought into the notion of the awards having some inherent value, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and and that the I mean, if we're talking about how the Oscars became so important or so significant, they just like did like <laughs> instant like people just wanted them. It was like the Academy is filled with the best. And like um, with Hollywood's best, and like I want to be the best. And the people who are the best, in, or who are in the organization, voted for these people, so it must mean something to. Well, that would suggest <laughs> that the people making movies just need constant validation. Oh, <laughs> wait a second! I think I think this is falling into place yes. now. So Capra, keeping in mind with this, um, <laughs> pretty much like within like two years of the awards, he's just like obsessed. Like this is all that he wants is like, he's like, I work at Columbia and I know it's a B picture house. And like, but I have to validate myself as being important. I am an important filmmaker. I, and, um, like he petitions the Academy saying that because he's, he wasn't a member at that time because claiming that it was like an injustice against the low, smaller studios and the percentage of people who are actually getting invited in this organization was just favoring, you know, the, the big five and this is terrible. And, um, Capra likes to, you know, put these types of articles in variety things that would piss off a lot of people. Um, and he gets membership and basically from that point on, he's just like joining things because he wants to campaign. Like, honestly, um, like this is like his life. Seemed, he seemed like heavily fixated and emotionally invested in like the idea of the trophy, um, in a way that like, I've never seen art as like openly articulated the way he'll like he'll reflect back on his time striving for the Academy Award, that kind of thing. When you look at older interviews of him or his autobiography, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, he's he's joining committees. He's getting heavily, heavily involved. And a lot of it seems to be for the basis of like getting to know all of the people who are going to be voting on awards and nominating and things like that. So I was going to, cause you <laughs> used the word campaign. And of course, if you live in Los Angeles and if you know anybody who's a part of any guild or organization, whether it be a critics organization or the DGA, this is screener season, you know, and it's always, but you also see billboards for your consideration, all that sort of thing. And it's in variety. Like this, this city is just, over overrun from like December until the nominations. Mm -hmm. Um, and so like how early was it as early as this? Like he was campaigning to be a part of organizations, but like, was he also campaigning to win things and influence people? Like, did mm -hmm. it start basically immediately? I mean, from what I can tell people are just, almost instantaneously want to have the tro get a trophy. Yeah. Like the level of campaigning kind of gets into like a great area. It comes with, you know, who is the individual rather than it being like how studios are functioning because right. there's, you know, individual campaigning because I want one versus there's the the movie PR team pushing things that kind of and working at based off of what's best for the product of the movie or at that time period the actors or individuals signed to their company um, via contract. Um, but there are certainly like cases that kind of push the limits of or give indicators of where um, celebrities were at in terms of their desires to want things and their willingness to kind of fight um, 
systems in order to get considered for it. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm specifically thinking of Betty Davis in 1934, 34, 33, um, when she she didn't get nominated for uh, her performance in Of Human Bondage. And there was this sort of notorious rumor that spread after that period of time um, to the point where it changed Academy voting rules. Um, which was that she made that movie um, on loan from Warner Brothers. And after she gets snubbed, there are these headlines that are coming out that are going on. Like, this only occurred because Jack Warner didn't want her to get nominated for a movie that wasn't made at her studio. And he mm-hmm. actively campaigned, uh, or uh, saying that they felt that he had actively campaigned just right. to be like, just don't vote for her. Um, and the level of like spin that that came and you have like, um, you know, photo play being like, there's no integrity to the Academy Awards. It's, they're so terrible. <laughs> well, How it's nice they to know they're saying that that early. Um, <laughs> um <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, and the Academy like caves and like adds a write in option. Hmm. So that year, like, and for the next several years after that, there's the, here's your nominees, but if you don't like these people, you can add someone that you feel like um, deserved it but didn't get nominated for whatever. Hmm. Um, that also the year after that is um, when they first hire um, their accounting firm, who, who's done such a great job until last year. Pricewaterhouse. Price Pricewaterhouse, right? thank you. Yeah, that's the first time that Pricewaterhouse is hired is specifically because of this, like, Betty Davis controversy. Mm. What you have there is, like, clearly, you know, let's just spin... Um, Let's let's work specifically in relation to one particular actress. Yeah, like this is a clear sign that there's campaigning going on, and that right. this individual wants it. And um, frequently, in terms of like silly Oscar situations or wins, um, the year after that, she wins Best Actress for hmm. I think is it Dangerous. What's that? Um, I don't recall. I don't. But it's that's her first trophy, and it like is not one of her most known performances, but it was literally hmm. like she caused like hell yeah. last year. <laughs> it's, it's oh, we, know Betty Davis. Like, Fine. we love her. Um, uh, but, but that's sort of like the level of how hard people are fighting for things. And Capra, I think more so than anyone else is just like obsessed with the Academy Award and the idea hmm. of what it will mean for him and like the legitimacy it will give him. Um, as as a filmmaker to win Academy Awards. And ultimately, like, if we think about kind of, like, why is Capra... Part of Capra's, you know, like, allure is the connection to prestige he ends up having. He wins Best Picture, I think, three or four times in the 30s. Three, four... You can't take it with you. Mm-hmm. Or or he has a contender. The years he doesn't win, he wins director. Huh. Oh, much. wow. All right. So, like, if it's not Best Picture, he won. Like, and that's sort of, you know, the how does Capra become Capra? Is, like, there is a huge connection to yeah. you know, him being so successful there. He's also, during that period of time, the president of, organ- of the organization. And not no. even claiming that there's any like thing not kosher happening there, but he is president of the organization during that period of time, and he's sort of reforming it. But what I'm what I'm getting at here is that when everyone in Hollywood hates the Academy and they still like the Academy Awards, the guy who maybe loves them the most 
is put in charge. Yeah. And that's kind of where the Academy ends up going as being this awards organization is that like CAFRA doesn't feel like the labor division is a, is a failure and it shouldn't be there anymore. And he's very much trying to reorganize in a way to specifically make it the awards organization. And that's really where things end up going. And he says that he saves the, saved the Academy. That's sort of his, his great mindset of, and do you think that's true? I don't know. You kind of convinced me, honestly. Maybe, like, <laughs> like he changed it by basically, I, he, he saved it by changing it completely. Like I, I always am like, did he save it or did like a bunch of people who like worked for him do sure. it? Like, you know, did Captain believe in anything or did he just like America? Yes. Very much America. Well, but like, I think that was more like Robert Riskin believed in America. <laughs> like, Oh, just as an aside, this is a quote that I don't have confirmed. And it like was me talking to his biographer, but like he sweared that there was a quote from him at some point in like the early thirties where he said like, you know, this like forgotten man, um, American values thing, like someone could make a gold mine off of it, that kind of thing. <laughs> I don't, it's an unsourced mm-hmm. and uncredited, someone so could. I can't like, but I, it's worth, I, I, from everything I understand about Capra, I would be much more inclined to believe the version of him, like understanding capitalism and where he can be the most successful profit wise as a filmmaker yeah. more than him believing in things. Aww. But like maybe he. <laughs> it's like, like the one thing but, I had left. But like he does, but he like I can never figure him out, and mm. um and that's kind of where the director's guild stuff comes into play, um is the the end of his tenure at the academy correlates to the beginning of his uh, tenure at the screen directors guild, which is to say that there is a period of time where he is president of both organizations. <laughs> I wonder if there's a conflict of interest there. Love it. Um, <laughs> So the Academy officially withdrew from um, labor in any capacity in 1937. This was um, directly tied to a Supreme Court ruling that um, basically the first set of of union-related regulations were part of a larger bill that was deemed unconstitutional. And then there was a second bill that basically had the people are, are entitled to unionize, we're setting up the National Labor Relations Board. Um, to determine who should be unionized. And then there were decisions and the, that started to come through that everyone should unionize. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was happening across the country, not just in Hollywood, though SAG did get a ruling around during this period of time. Um, but there was an appeal to the Supreme Court, and the hope was that like, across America, basically, like, hopefully this is going to get overturned and, like, we're going to ignore, you know, and come up with excuses to ignore what the, the National Labor Relations Board has said until we know for sure this is actually even allowed to be a thing. Um, it gets uphold, upheld in 1937, and almost shortly after that, you see SAG get their first contract, or hmm. being the first of the creative guilds to get their first, the standard contract um, to exist. Um, so it's all Hollywood is is a part of you know the American climate. They're not too individualized, right. though they certainly get more publicity for you know when something's happening than yeah. other people are occurring. So, is it is, at this point is it is it measurable whether or not the idea of a, of a film winning an Oscar or an actor or actress having an impact on the way 
Hollywood has seen or the the money a, a movie might make like on that side of it like does it aside from just boosting the egos of the people involved is that does it actually contribute to the financial part of Hollywood as well yes um, and there's a fun story connected to this one. <laughs> Oh, too much stuff on my mind. Um, so a really, I, I've seen like some element of stats on one particular movie, which is um, The Informer. Um, it was written by Dudley Nichols, um, and there was a certain controversy at the Academy Awards that year. Um, leaders of the guilds had ordered a, a protest to like people not to come to the ceremony. Hmm. Um, and there were a lot of individuals who didn't show up and particularly aggressive amongst them was Dudley Nichols, who was, um, ended up winning screenplay, best screenplay that night. Um, the day after the ceremony, he publicly issued a statement of like reasons why he's not accepting his award. And that ran, um, it, it was enough to not just be in variety, but like public knowledge about this like backlash protest that, hmm. you know, hmm. photo play being like, it's, it's such a tragedy that Hollywood be in, you know, in so much pain um, and how it, it's so terrible that would affect the Academy Awards um, that year. There was a lot less star power there, but pretty much anyone who like thought they were likely to win a trophy that night showed up. So Betty Davis came in to like get her Oscar that time, that kind of thing. Hmm. Um, but it was certainly less. It was it was not as big and and spectacle y. <laughs> spectacular. I've been talking a lot. <laughs> it's all right. it's okay. um, it was not. It, it was a much smaller event and than it had been previously. Um, and it didn't have the same kind of like star power yield that particular year. Yeah. So um, we you have. The informer and the screenwriter and Dudley Nichols, who's makes this public statement and it sort of gets leveraged in terms of like Hollywood noticing like that there was a particular backlash because the movie reopens wide almost immediately after that. And it didn't win Best Picture, but it still mm -hmm. gets this massive rerun. And part of it like gets this like attraction of how much drama and controversy is occurring in Hollywood and like the statements that Dudley Nichols made and John Ford also was very he accepted his trophy but was not because who doesn't want a trophy basically <laughs> right. um, but said that he doesn't support the Academy um, hmm. he supports the, the Screen Directors Guild um, but he still got his trophy Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was the difference between John Ford and, or, you know, a director and a, a screenwriter. You, you have the, the radical screenwriter being like, right. I want nothing to do with your, you know, your bourgeois trophy. And then you've got your, you know, high end director being like, yeah, of course I'll make that. Like, it's shiny. I'm cool. not happy with all this, but yeah. thank you yeah. very much. Yeah, exactly. But in a few years, um, I might be, and I would like this on my mantle when I am. Yeah, but I was able to see like quantifiable stats of like what opened. And like, in addition to winning the trophies, it got like this, there was this public, like right. these officials who were being loud in relation to the movie just reminded people like, oh, there's this movie. We should go see it. There's all this stuff around it. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and that was what kind of got me to, to bring up that particular yeah, yeah. point. Um, but in, in terms of, of with, after the withdrawal from the Academy and like Frank Capra's role that's occurring, um, 
he progressively becomes more and more involved in the Directors Guild with intentions that sometimes seem noble, um, which is that there's a huge struggle with the directors actually getting their own rights um, because they're argued to not really be employees, their employers, given right. their position on sets and things like that. And they particularly had a lot of holdouts of big directors not wanting to, you know, feeling like they're more employers than right. employees, working sometimes more directly with producers, that kind of thing. And like having really solid cush contracts that like even, you know, a lower tier director is still getting like a pretty solid salary, that kind of thing. Hmm. Um, and Frank Capra kind of like, he's originally like not interested. He's I'm doing well with what I've got here. Um, and his interest in the director's guild kind of rises if with correlates a little bit to like his distaste for being at Columbia pictures. Um, <laughs> so, you know, that's again, where like, I'm, I, I want to like, I want my noble Frank Capra, but like, yeah. you, know, you always have this like in the background, but the one thing that always happens with Capra is when you put him in charge of something, stuff gets done. Yeah. So whether or not he believes in it, like there are certain people in Hollywood who like really believed in the director's guild and like John Ford really believed in the director's guild, but was not capable of like negotiating and sitting in on meetings and like arguing the case um, with lawyers present with producers as the enemy on the other side, that kind of thing. And no. that was the type of thing Kaffer was good at. Hmm. Um, so he kind of, he gets his interest in the Directors Guild grows as his life at Columbia becomes less of what he'd wanted as working conditions-wise, no. and he's fighting with Harry Cohn and things like that. Um, and he eventually ends up taking, once he starts taking a leadership role, he's basically like the, the head honcho in terms of like negotiating meetings and things like that. Mm. And the key to like Capra's, I think, simple brilliance is like he's, one of the he's got a publicist he's always had a publicist he's like one of the few directors who like has their you know has their own working publicist at that period of time which is to say that like something happens and it goes out to the trade the next day yeah hmm. it, which is great when you're like when you can't get records in the archive of meetings you always have when you're dealing with something the like capra was in the room where like <laughs> negotiations with the directors guild broke down and you get the next day you go, this meeting was terrible. And here's Capra's statement about why the producers were assholes. And then like the next day you'll have like a response from like Daryl Zanuck being like, no, you're the asshole. <laughs> and they'll go back and forth like publicly in variety, for, <laughs> um, which I is would, great. That would be um, amazing. <laughs> but you know, in that respect there, it's constantly in conversation. And because of like his name, he has a couple of like huge op-ed pieces in like the New York times and stuff like that. There are, making it, you know, a national conversation and reminding people that like that unionization is occurring <laughs> yeah. in Hollywood, that kind of thing. I'm not trying to make them sound noble if I'm like the director's guild. Uh, um, no. <laughs> I, I don't like, think anybody's noble at this point. Yeah. Well, I mean, in the midst of this, and this is why I get so complicated about the screen director's guild is, um, 
unit managers and assistant directors are trying to unionize with underneath within the the screen directors guild and they actually could use a union that's that that's one of the thing. things that kind of amazed me when i first joined <laughs> is they were talking about the history and i thought okay well it, it doesn't seem like like you said directors needed a guild at first if they are kind of like the employers mm-hmm. it seems like they they don't really need that kind of protection and i had already always assumed well that's because upms and assistant directors and all those people they needed you know they did need that protection but uh, but that wasn't the case at the time they were they weren't even involved at first mm-hmm. <laughs> well i i mean assistant directors were always a part of the the directors guild mindset pretty much from the founding but it was sort of it was one of the biggest arguments that came up in meetings which is to say that like directors are not um, they're employers, they're not employees, and why are you trying to align yourself with the assistant directors? And in general, mm-hmm. like you, sh- these guys should be getting a union, but they shouldn't be in the same group together. Hmm. However, um, and this is the key thing about Hollywood during the the 30s, um, they're the main thing that the assistant directors and unit managers are dealing with is their primary option for unionizing is go it alone, where they have absolutely no leverage because they're not that large of a working body, or join IATSE, which at that time was run by the mob. <laughs> this is legit. Um, <laughs> there, you know, in 1939, there's this huge uncovering of the mob ties that are occurring in IATSE across the country. And like a lot of people working in Hollywood were extorted out of money given in the lower division workforce, given these like weird fees, that kind of thing. And like millions of dollars were made um, by leaders. And, Depending on the the legal claim that went to courts, um, the Association of Motion Picture Producers, Nick Skank, giving them money at different periods of time to not cause, to like look away from union issues or not lead to strikes, that kind of thing. And, you know, there's the debate of like, we were pressured into that money, which is what went into when they went to court. Um, as opposed to, um, we gave them money, so that way for an activity. Um, <laughs> <laughs> for an activity. All right. But so if you're an assistant director, like, your third option is unionize with the directors. And, mm, like, right. I, I mean, I've talked to people who are, who are assistant directors, and they're like, yeah, we get everything that we want because the directors go whatever, get whatever they want whenever yeah. they re-up, and, like, it's a sweet deal for all of us. Yeah. Um, so, like, that was the big argument that was occurring there. Ultimately, when they start, they have their standard contract signed. Unit managers aren't a part of it. They have their own individual organization that basically has no leverage for, like, decades after that. Hmm. And that's kind of where, like, they there's this... In the negotiating committee that ultimately leads to this contract, there are no assistant directors there. And they're, like, making these noble claims about, like, helping their their workers below them. And, like, they fuck over the unit managers and... Um, but the assistant directors get attached to them, do become attached and eventually they emerge, but like for like a parasite, uh, Josh, exactly. So it doesn't stop you get you from getting screeners. It's Um, a, it's a symbiotic relationship. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You'll pick this stuff out of their teeth or whatever. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sure that's literally happened at some point. (laughs) Anyway, so Capra, (laughs) um, at this time he's, he's. They're going into negotiations. They continuously, our conversations are being broken down. It's in, it's um, 1938. 
SAG had been unionized for about a year. The Writers Guild is just off in their own world of chaos that doesn't get resolved for another year or so after that. But um, there's no reason why they shouldn't have a contract at that point. They're just like arguing in circles. And in the middle of that, Capra becomes president of the Directors Guild and he's president of the Academy at the same time. And that's kind of where things start to get interesting in, in their unionization process is um, Capra starts making threats to uphold, upend the Academy Damn at different it. periods of time. <laughs> um, really, I didn't expect this to be uh, so Capra heavy, most specifically his not being that great of no, a person. No, I think this is great. Okay, okay. so like, this is why I love him, actually. Like, this is like, you know, he did some baller moves here. Um <laughs> So now when you're giving a presentation to like a review board, <laughs> do you incorporate phrases like baller moves? And if so, I bet, you know, I bet they'd respond to that. I, I say do it. I, yeah. I am giving a conference presentation on something that's vaguely related to this. It's, it's like about a, a specific committee while they're withdrawing from labor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose I could throw in some of that dialogue when I, when I get to uh, Toronto this year. As two people that, are never going to do this. I think you should listen to us. Um, so, uh, now there's an entire, um, you know, we could do, it occurs to me now, like we could do an entire series on this. We can't this year, unfortunately. Uh, but we can bring you back next year. But what I'll say is I did want to jump to, Oh, oh, sorry. Um, can I finish my Capra story? By by all means. So the showdown that led to the director's guild getting their first, their standard contract Mm -hmm. rights to be a real union, that kind of thing. Um, they're going into negotiations and it's a week before the Academy Awards that year. And the the leader of the negotiating committee for the AMPP, which is Association of Motion Picture Producers, not to be confused with the Association of Motion Picture Producers and Distributors, or um, which is the Hayes office, but they mm. have it's sort of their like this shadow organization where producers and lawyers meet to like discuss like industry-wide issues and like be like shadowy and evil or <laughs> something like that, um, and mysterious and say we don't want any of our workers to have any of this stuff. So Nick Skank is the um, head of that particular bargaining unit. And so a lot of this is like them fighting with each other. But negotiations break down entirely a week before the event. And in the midst of like these sort of this this meeting that the like the leaders of the directors guild are having they're like they're just going to keep using these same excuses over and over again like what can we possibly do what can actually be done and Capra like you know basically is like we'll destroy the academy awards (laughs) um so he basically the the threat that they do is like this this one-two punch is that like i'm gonna which i'm organizing the event you guys get tons of publicity from it like I am withdrawing as master of the ceremony, and ceremony ain't happening this week. Like, it, it, what do you want to do with that? And beyond that, if you don't follow through on that, we're gonna next organize and strike. So the the it was not just the Academy Awards, but he, the timing wise was you need to act now. This isn't yeah. a oh let's renegotiate in a couple of days because they'd gotten that excuse before too. Yeah. It was like this is when the ceremony is. It's a week from now. Do you want it to happen or not? Um, and within about like 24 hours, they yield and that's yeah. how the director's guild gets their contract is yeah. like it, the threat to implode the, <laughs> the Oscars. And it speaks to how powerful the Oscars were getting at the time. It's yeah. like, yeah. you don't, 
I mean, again, they're just trophies. And yes, there's a financial benefit to it, but like the idea is like, oh, we'll do whatever you want. Just don't take our Oscars away. And yeah. I don't mean to, yeah. I realize that's reductive, but you know. And, and, but exactly. And it's not even just, it's not even like they were going to destroy the Academy permanently. It was like this year. It's yeah. not going to happen. It was important enough that they were like, we don't want to skip it for a year. Yeah. When, when were the Oscars first televised? 1953. Okay. Were they on the radio before that? Yes. Okay. All right. They, um, kind of, you know, in relation to when the Academy is in chaos versus when it isn't, there's a format of broadcast after the second ceremony or during the second ceremony. Oh, okay. Um, And that's occurring until like 1932 because 1933 hits and they have no money and everyone Hmm. hates them. Right. So 19, um, 40, which is kind of when all this stuff has been resolved is the first time you have a full, on the next wave of radio broadcasts and sort yeah. of the idea of what the radio broadcast becomes um, starts in at that period of time. So during this period of talking about, there wasn't broadcasting occurring. Hmm. Okay. A lot of photos being taken. I'd be interested to hear like what went into the decision making to decide to uh, to broadcast it in some way that early. Were people? I don't know if people were interested in it enough that early, if they just thought people would be interested because they're celebrities and they're famous and all that kind of thing. I mean, I guess that would make sense. <laughs> Probably. Yes. Like it's, if, when you like dip into history and you just see like, I remember I, I wrote a paper last year about like that dealt slightly with like the history of film criticism and film criticism was something that had to be as a concept was something that had to be fought for the one thing that didn't have to be fought for was anything having to do with movie stars, like mm. at all um, to the point that like there are, there are magazines about movies and there would be write-ups about movies, but it would only be plot synopsis. And actually people liked these magazines and they loved all these stories about their favorite stars, but actually readers themselves said, well, we would like to actually know if these are good or not. And so it's, so that's, that's a side story. But the point is that like, yeah, from the get go, the concept of the movie star, like caught on like wildfire. And so like anything having to do with that, which leads to uh, an article that I wrote for battleship retention a while ago in which, uh, you know, in response to certain political things, like uh, some conservative commentators were talking about, like, oh, the Emmys and the Oscars—they're never—they're not so highly rated it's because they—it's all these politi- these left-leaning movies, and people don't want to see that. They don't want politics shoved th- down their throat. And I wrote an article saying, like, or maybe it's that people can get celebrities anywhere now. For a long time, the idea is like, look at this fashion, look at the your favorite movie stars, and aside from the occasional like interview here and there, you could really only get that level of majesty at the Oscars, and you know, and back in the in the 30s and 40s, like people would get whatever they could of their movie stars, even Mm -hmm. uh, even if they're not seeing them, like even if it's a radio broadcast, they'll Mm -hmm. take what they can get. Yeah, exactly. So that's that's kind of the instant appeal just in general of them is like, you're, Oh my gosh, you're going to put a bunch of like famous people in a room and, and like, even yeah. if you can't have a camera there, like there are going to be photos of it. This is so exciting. Yeah. Um, you know, instant allure of, of a ceremony like that. And at that time, that was pretty much the only time you're going to get that. Which, which is still even a little bit on a lore nowadays watching it. Yeah. They're all together in one place. I always say one of my favorite parts about watching the Oscars is to see like, 
like Tom Cruise in the background. It's like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not, you can mm. have like five famous people, not the focus of a shot. It's weird. And anytime you look at those old like studio photos of like, you know, here's our stable of stars and there's like 70 people there. And it's like all the people that you, that are abs, that are like Titans mm-hmm. of the industry then and now, mm-hmm. and just to see that they're all just kind of crammed together <laughs> as employees of this studio. Yeah. And it's like, Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Um, but, uh, okay. So, um, at what point, okay. I'm jumping to literally now. Um, fine. Okay. I'm been, sorry. Uh, no more Capra. I'm good with that. No, it's, <laughs> it, it's fine. It's, you know, it's just interesting to think of this thing that we associate with Hollywood, certainly now Hollywood in general, and the idea that one person, admittedly a big person, you know, like Capra, somebody that's well known. It's interesting when you think about the Oscars might not be the Oscars if not for Capra. Well, certainly wouldn't be. But he might not be Capra if not for the Oscars, yeah. which is just like this fascinating symbiotic uh, thing. And it, and it makes you realize that. To a certain degree, I'm not sure. I, I do wonder. So this is a this is an opinion question for everybody at the table. Do you think the Oscars make that much of a difference now? Do you think somebody winning an Oscar, do you think it can make their career, uh, or it can elevate their career the way maybe it used to be able to? <laughs> I, I would say it can. I don't think it always does. I mean, we can see obviously that it doesn't always. And but. I think, I think it is a tool that can be used for that in the right hands. I think an actor who knows how to do that and really an agent who knows yes. how to use that to say, my client does prestige pictures. My client's not going to be in Sharknado 5 or whatever. Right. Um, oh, but what if he was? <laughs> what if Christoph Waltz? Jeremy, Jeremy Irons is yeah. perfect for that, yes. Um, but... Uh, but yeah, I, I think it does uh, because of the prestige thing. Because that's a certain that's a different level of uh, of project. It's not just you know it's it's suggesting that that talent is meant for, and I say talent in the sense of like actors um, is meant for art rather than just entertainment. Because mm-hmm. the you know the movies are always a balance between those two things, and there are many movies that tend to far fall much more on one side or the other. Um, but the, the Oscars are almost always thought of as art, like yeah. the, uh, a celebration of art. Right. <laughs> so I, I think that I would say actors can, uh, of course I'm talking about actors specifically I, above the line people. I think it helps. I think, I, think the line, so, yeah. I don't think it makes that much of a difference. Yeah. Maybe it does on the industry. Like if you're an Oscar winning sound guy, maybe that makes a difference. <laughs> I, mean, I have no she, idea. But honestly, I feel like if I was working on something and they were like, Oh, so-and-so he, he actually won an Oscar. I'd be like, Oh, that's cool. But I, I don't think I'd be like, that doesn't necessarily mean he's, he's that still much fired better for sleeping with my wife. Yeah. Um, <laughs> sorry, I wanted to constantly having to fire people for sleeping with my wife. <laughs> you'd think you'd get a divorce, but no, it's anyway. Sorry. Yeah. Um, that was, oh, anyway. I was, I mean, I was going to say like, it depends on whose perspective you're looking at. Like, I'm not going to claim to understand how like individual, how it impacts individuals winning individual trophies but like mm-hmm. i think the impact of the academy awards in the contemporary sense is undeniable i think that there is an entire economic system existing because they're a platform and no. you know the entire award season of course leading to them all kind of being an awards industry in of itself but that doesn't just mean like 
oh, there are a bunch of movies that come out. But it's like, I think the Hollywood functions around this particular event as a way of continuing to have certain types of movies exist, really. Like, there's a market for smaller movies that aren't big blockbusters because there's an award season that's in existence. Yeah. Yeah. And that it, may seem like, oh, well, you know, these, these you know, fake Oscar bait movies, but that goes into independent cinema because right. even if you're, you know, you're making an art film and you're not ever thinking about awards, can, the Academy Awards, because they're bullshit and they don't actually mean anything, or they're not going to actually like represent art. They're just going to be like, you know, PR campaigns and stuff like that. Like you're working within a system where a large portion people buying are thinking about like, how can I make the most money? And the mo- the way that you get your film you get your film bought is that they think you can make money and the entire the you know gold standard situation is like the best way to make money is to have a movie that you can buy that can get an awards campaign because that's the best way for them to make money yeah and there may you may never ever see it changing hands but you have this entire outlet circulating that i think trickles down into everything because you have an award season um, and the, that forms over time, and it's interesting that it splits because I think that at one time the big movie and the um, awards movie were intertwined, and now you have the the blockbuster movie and you have the awards movie right. and everything else. I I don't want to seem like it's it's trivializing things, but everything else from an economic standpoint feels like it's just some variation in the middle of these two different spectrums. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's 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 funny because within the critical community, I feel like a lot of people sort of poo poo the Oscars and say, oh, it's you know, it's just Hollywood showing off. And that it's it's in fashion to be uh, cynical about the Oscars. But a lot of the filmmakers that that same critical community lauds so much and holds up so much wouldn't be who they were today if it weren't for the Oscars. Paul Thomas Anderson wouldn't be who he was yeah. if it weren't for the Oscars. Probably Terrence Malick. A lot of these ones who Certainly. are considered the. Uh, to, to be some of the finest working artists currently that these critics love wouldn't be able to work the way they are if it weren't for the money that comes from prestige pictures. And it's arguable if somebody like Steven Spielberg would have his career as it stands now, if not for the Oscar recognition for say the color purple. And then certainly Schindler's list, like he was powerful enough that he could probably do what he wanted to do. But like, Mm -hmm. if it was not, if he were not, and I guess when I think about like his blockbuster movies, like Jaws and Raiders, like, those were nominated for Oscars, but I don't think anybody ever assumed they were going to win. Uh, but then like, well, now you got to make, now you can make your serious movies and you can win your Oscars and then you will be seen as one of the great directors. I wonder if, uh, uh, there, there's no way to know, I'm sure. But like in Steven Silver's head, did he think I'd rather be one of these other directors and, uh, or, or did he just change his mind at some point? Or if he wasn't making any money off things like The Color Purple or Schindler's List, would he still be making Jaws's and uh, and uh, Raiders of the Lost Arks? I don't know. I think eh, maybe if you look at his career now. Hasn't it always been a like one for them, one for me thing? That, like, I feel like that's what he says. Is, maybe. Like, yeah. And, and it, <laughs> it, I could see that a little bit now, although I, I'm not sure who all of the recent ones are for. I'm not a f- big fan of recent He's Spielberg. got some blockbustery thing coming out. Soon. Oh, Ready, Ready Player, Player One. one. Yeah, that's that right. One. Yes, yeah. and I liked the post yeah. as well. I thought that was pretty good, but yeah, um, it was it, it was Spielbergy, but like yeah. it was a crowd pleaser. Yeah, <laughs> and it seemed a lot more. Well, that's another that that that'll head us. <laughs> Let's uh, talk to about another. three billboards again. <laughs> <laughs> 
You know what? I could very easily. <laughs> you and I were sitting, Josh, you and I, like two old men, were sitting on your front porch the other day. Complaining. And we're talking about three billboards for like 20 minutes. Um, I did have a question. A couple of uh, a couple things that people talk about in regards to the, the Oscars um, throughout history, but one of them a lot more recently. There are so many award shows now. And the Oscars do seem to be like, the World Series, the Super Bowl, there are no awards after the Oscars, like mm-hmm. as far as movies are mm-hmm. concerned. Um, and like there are the Screen Actors Guild Awards, like it's an actual ceremony. It's not merely that awards are given, there's an actual ceremony. Um, and now thinking about all this union stuff. I actually, the Screen Actors Guild Awards, okay. or you know, the, 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 when people are like, if, if I'm doing my Oscar predictions or something, I usually you follow the Guild Awards sure. because there's an overlap. But basically, so part of the appeasement tactic and why we have the Screen Actors Guild Awards and all of when all of those are founded is directly tied to like Academy Award policy and and all of the union stuff I was talking about before. Um, so when they withdraw from the Academy, withdraws from labor in 1937 to get people to actually rejoin the organization. Um, Everyone is allowed to vote for the Academy Awards um, through to 1946. So literally, if you're a member of a guild, you're voting for the Oscars hmm. oh, during really? World War II. Interesting. So there, there's no variation on that. And then in the 40s and the post-war period is when they, you know, block up lines again. And it's just Academy members. But pretty much immediately after that, you see SAG and... The Writers Guild and pretty much every organ, other organization and even like trade groups launching their own ceremonies. Mm-hmm. And at one time, I remember seeing an article like in the early period of the Screen Actors Guild where it was like before the Oscars and like the writer was speculating that they were trying to like, you know, destroy the Oscars thunder, that kind of thing. Um, but that there was this this mindset of rivalry when they were first starting out. But instead, it sort of feels like it's like a hierarchy, like leading up to them. And like, they just, they're not important. Um, but it, I mean, it is interesting in terms of value system that like Screen Actors Guild, where you're being voted on by your peers, not as important as, you know, an Academy Awards trophy. Yeah. And I think it's because it, the Oscars have that history. Like that statue has looked the same since, you know, it's been, what, 90 years now, uh, 91 maybe, I think, right? Um, and so, like, there's that, but then, what? okay, what is it, the the EGOT, there's the Emmy, yeah. the <laughs> Grammy, Grammy, the Oscar, Oscar and the Tony. And so, like, it's it's interesting that... I mean, it's almost kind of a joke, but like now that's the goal. Like, okay, yes, I've got my Oscar, but it's time for me to go and do legitimate theater and uh, then I can get my Tony and be seen as a real, a real actor. I feel like when you look at the list of people who actually have the ego, it's very strange. It's a very strange list. And yeah, I I feel like that should make people stop thinking this is something I have to get because there's people on that that you'd like you forgot about. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and usually it's like a bunch of people who get like the Emmy, Grammy or Emmy, Tony and Oscar. Then they do like a spoken word. Yeah. And that's yeah. where all of those Grammys come from. It's just like I can read. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to act yeah. with music. And now I, now I'll get a Grammy. I just thought of somebody like who was I saw a billboard for somebody recently and I was like, oh, they might be on their way to the EGOT. But I thought they'd have to do one of those or like a. 
like a yeah. that feels yeah. like someone actively wanting to get ego. Okay. Oh, yes. Like that's how yes. you yeah. end up yeah. getting it. Right. <laughs> um, I did. Okay. So my, my last question, cause we do need to, to wrap up. So there's this, I, I forget who it was, but there's a comedian who made a joke. It might've been, I think it was Eddie Izzard. Uh, cause it was a non-American comedian. Um, and he was talking about the, I think the world series. And he said, interesting that the U S won again, <laughs> you know, <laughs> implication being that like, how the hell do they have the audacity to call themselves the world <laughs> series? I guess Montreal's in there too, but, um, yeah, Toronto, I guess so. Come yeah. on. All right. Any others? Uh, that's it. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, is Montreal even in there anymore? I have no idea. I think they might not be anymore. I think that team might've moved, but, uh, fun fact, when I was younger, I thought it was the Montreal expose. <laughs> and I thought like, Ooh. that sounds like a strip club. Anyway, I don't want to know what their mascot, uh, <laughs> but, uh, in that same way, like best picture in a way you, you kind of want to be like, wow, how, what an odd coincidence that the best picture of the year so often comes from the U S now don't get me wrong. I think there are a lot of great uh, movies that come out of the U S but like no foreign language film has ever won best picture. They it's, and they kind of ghettoize them a little bit with uh, best foreign film. Now I know that like at the first Oscars, they gave a special special Oscar to sunrise, but that's back when there was no such thing as foreign language. <laughs> yeah. Everything yeah. was for everybody because well, it's purely sunrise visual. was, they did a kind of divided system to pretty much just like nominate everything across yeah. the field. And so it was in like the art film category, but there yeah. were four other movies nominated along with it. Okay. Um, Do you know what some of the other ones were out of curiosity? I don't Not off the top of my no, head. I, I wonder what some of them were. Cause I, yeah, just at that, the at distinction that time. between the two is like really like fuzzy and yeah. confusing. Yeah. Um, as is, you know, most things when you try and categorize things as art, um, in terms of, of, you know, the sort of global mindset, I, that's something that the Academy actually like struggled with for a period of time um, in the the post-war period in particular, which um, not that it's getting into foreign film in the sense of something that's properly, you know, another language, that kind of thing. And but in the po in following World War Two, you with the waves of international distribution, foreign movies coming in to, from the war, that kind of thing. You see more foreign language films get nominated in 1946, the words that are in 1947, than ever before. You know, things like Rome Open City, that kind mm -hmm. of stuff that, like, didn't get to come to the States until then. Um, but there's actually huge consequences for, and in the early period of more global cinemas coming in, um, in relation to the awards themselves, but I, by global, I'm meaning like movies from England, yeah. um, which is to say that uh, the first movie that was not American made was Hamlet, in right. which won in 1949, released in 1948. The distinction between that can get really, really confusing. Yes, I constantly confusing. have to recheck myself on that. Yeah. I'm like, okay, no, this they won the trophy. This it came out then. I, okay. I have watched so many like trivia shows or I've played trivia games where it says like the best picture 1975. And I'm like, Oh, well that's one flew over the cuckoo's nest. And like, Oh, it was a Godfather part two. It's like, no asshole. <laughs> that's not how it works. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Don't be a jerk. You know what I mean? And the, the Casablanca <laughs> one is one that always gets me because that's, that's my favorite film, but it, I always see it listed as either 43 or 42. And the, I think that, one in the awards that were 
you know, the awards took place in 44, but I don't know whether the movie came out in 42 or 43. I've heard. Yeah. It's, it's, it seems like it would have had to have come out in 43 to win for the year 43, yeah. mm-hmm. but for so big a movie, you'd think people would have a better handle on that. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah. And so, um, well, Sorry, that was a, a I was digression. Say in, I mean, it's really interesting, even when you're positioning the stuff, is like award season was a thing really fast. And like a lot of times when you're talking about movie distributions, like they're connected to award season. And we're not talking about like some movie in 1940. We're talking about like some movie that played for like a week in 1940. <laughs> and then okay, yeah. like that's yeah. what we're dealing with, like Gone with the Wind. Mm. That kind of thing was an award season based movie in terms of its distribution. Um, and, you know, things that were in a gray area. The Academy had to deal with that as as a, a mindset in the post-war period. Um, there were actually complaints from the American Theater Owners Association um, in 1946 that there were too too many movies coming out in the end of the year that they could the theater owners could not accommodate it for the amount of theater really? space. Hmm. And wow. that's where the Academy, rather than you know, being like, dude, release your movie in the actual year, goes, okay, it can run for like this many days and then open wide in January. Right. And that's where it comes from was the idea that the theater owners don't have enough space for it, which hmm. clearly isn't the case of what's happening anymore. But it does create a situation where the movies are, that are opening wide means that you're just talking about awards contenders straight until the ceremony. It keeps them more relevant along mm-hmm. with benefiting the studios. Yeah. Um, so it kind of goes hand in hand. Um, which is to say that there's this huge Hollywood system and the people who are benefiting from this all around are studio executives um, who at that period of time were paying for the Academy Award ceremony. It was sort of a collective. Every studio would put in some money to fund the event to happen every year, fund the radio broadcast, that kind of thing. Um, but it's kind of because like, well, one of them's going to win the prize and get like the most benefit from them. And all of them were kind of, you know, eyeing it and see what, see how it will unfold. But like, there's a general collective benefit. So they're all going to be involved in it in some capacity. Of course, like the voters, no one can really, no one can control who, what the voters do overall. And suddenly you have these like exciting foreign films coming in or Mm -hmm. more specifically, if we're going to be realistic about contenders, exciting British films coming in like Helen Pressburger. Sure. Um, Lawrence Olivier movies, that kind of thing. And they start to get more and more nominated. And there's this sort of like mindset amongst producers of like, how dare they? This is our <laughs> tool and they're not paying for it. Um, <laughs> like, what? That's not cool. Um, so basically, like the year after Hamlet wins Best Picture, they defund the event. Like no one will pay for it. Um, because, really? Yeah. And, and, Why don't you pay for it in pounds, yeah, limey? This, this basic mindset of like, this is you can't do that to us and like we're not going to use the tool and so there's an initial like there that particular year there was a particularly small event they had to do it at their own theater and like no one was able to come because they just didn't have any tickets Hmm. or like there just wasn't theater space that kind of thing because that was all that they could afford and like the year after that they have to like go begging basically to producers for a bailout because they can't wow. afford to fund the event themselves. But wow. all of this is occurring because like can't have a British film winning, you know, mm. best picture. Um, and that does get tied into like their, this is when also when Hollywood's kind of starting to fall apart and the Academy is clearly shows itself as its own independent organization and its membership will do what they do. And like, why are we going to keep spending money on this tool? We're falling apart and the Academy is going to be whatever they're going to be. And they're not beholden to us. Hmm. 
They may not be the tool we think that they are. But, but the one guarantee is that whether it be American English or British English, <laughs> it's going to be in English. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, you know, to such a degree, and this all, this just astonishes me even now. I, I'm, a, I'm fascinated it's still a rule that, like, okay, each country can submit one movie as their yeah. representative. I remember yeah. that in, I think it was 2003, I think Mexico they had to submit something. And so it's like, well, uh, I think that was two that maybe 2002, maybe I think it was 2003. I don't know. Anyway, it's like, that was actually a very popular film and made some money and, but it's, uh, it's a little bit, uh, we don't know if we can really mount an Oscar type campaign. Cause is, is it important? So they in, instead, uh, submitted, was it the crime of, uh, father, I don't remember exactly, but uh, I think Gail Garcia Bernal is in that as well. Um, <laughs> but that that one is more it's more Oscar-y. you know it has it's more inherently important. Um, and so it's just like because they could because an entire country that put out several movies, uh, they could only pick one and like, well, we're gonna we should pick the one that's gonna maybe has the best chance to win the Oscar. And it's just like, it just, I feel like you cannot, you cannot sum up the Oscars as more of a Hollywood based thing than the way foreign films are treated. Every yeah. once in a while, something slips through because it made money here. Like a crouching tiger, hidden dragon. Or life or is beautiful right. or something like that. But even then, yeah. it's Grand not. Delusion. What was that? Yeah. Yeah. Is the first foreign film mom fated for best picture. Really? Yeah. I always find that crazy. So. It's one of my favorite movies. I love it. <laughs> um, but it didn't win, nor did Crouching Tiger, nor did Life is Beautiful. Yeah. They never win because, well, we have one for that. I can't imagine I can't imagine seeing one win. I feel like I'd be shocked to see that happen. Like, not to say that they aren't better movies a right. lot of time. Like, I mean, Amore is wonderful. A Separation wasn't nominated, but it's one of the best movies of the last several gosh, years, I yeah. think. Um, yeah. So but it's, it's also the question of, like, who's the voting body and what right. is the award? I mean, is... And, and that's kind of what I was raising before and what's constantly in question. But, like... The people who are voting are people who've worked inside of Hollywood who have these relationships and, right, right. you know, understand, like, what the process is and, like, are they going to be voting for a global film that's not really within that system? I think, right, you yeah. know, it is to some extent, like, it's about, it's still about the same American type system. And lines, of course, are grayer in some contexts, yeah. but a lot of it still, yeah. I think, comes back to, like, who's actually... Yeah. Um, there yeah it's a lot less about just finding and identifying the most you know the the yeah. artistically greatest film of the year and about kind of congratulating oh. peers that we yeah. like the most yeah which, I which don't... they say is why crash one is that like the the actors that's like the greatest the biggest voting body in the academy oh is the and actors crash had a really big cast and like <laughs> everyone knew someone that was in crash. So let's give it to that one. Um, and then of course the other side of that is like, well, there was a, there was a French film that won best picture a few years ago. It was the artist oh, and God. it's a French film all about I, Hollywood. So I like, hate okay. that movie so much. You hate it. Why oh. do you hate it so much? Uh, I was going to say something about oh, voting blocks, but Oh God, I hate that movie because it's a, 
it misquotes like all of old Hollywood, uh, like okay. all of it, like <laughs> down to, oh, the dog's super cute. That's not a silent film reference. You don't know what the, that's, you know, referencing Asta, which is a sound film thing. And like, why are you playing the Vertigo soundtrack right now? Weird, right? Uh, it, like, I, I hate that movie. I mean, it was like, what? Uh, I don't need to go do it. I think I think I, was, I enjoy it as a movie, maybe not as a historian. I was, and I think John Jean Dujardin is very good in it, but that's that's me. Uh, Arguable whether it should have won best score, considering how firm best original score, considering how firmly placed that Vertigo uh, bit was. Yeah. Oh yeah, I, I don't, I do not understand the the score rules. Like things get disqualified all the time for yeah. reasons that are like make no sense and then that qualifies. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, you know, if we're talking about like the pools of, of who's present and like, you know, we raised the issue of like, okay, well there just isn't a lot of, aren't a lot of people who are like global cinema people attached to it and like what the voting pool looks like. Cause that's been the huge focus of the Academy in the past years. And like globalism is certainly not even on the minds mm. of anyone that, that we're, we're dealing with right now. But like, how do we, you know, how do we push Hollywood to be more diverse? And the answer has been to try and uh, and adjust the voting pool and, and be more inclusive in voting. Um, and that that can give us a better opportunity maybe to face less backlash, but that that is, that is the mindset completely. I think of how, what the Academy is doing right now. And there was, um, I remember Cheryl Blue Isaac saying as they in, kind of announced their policy shift that they wanted the, in wake of Oscars so white, they wanted to redefine themselves rather than being reflective of an industry that had, had prop has so many racial diversity and gender problems and instead wanted to be pushing the industry into new directions, right. which is a different shift from what you've seen previously, but an interesting idea. Certainly, you know, the, the crisis of Oscars so white, which I felt like we needed to bring, be brought up in the midst of this conversation, you know, it, it shows that the Academy still does what it was designed to do, which was kind of be the, the PR platform that takes the brunt of the industry's bad behavior. That's true. Yeah. And that's, you know, the Academy, all that they do is they're, they're organized enough to send out a bunch of ballots and then like have an event and like <laughs> the people vote, there's a bunch of people who vote for the ballots and they do what they do. And like, that's, that's not really in anyone's control, but re rather reflective of the industry that's there around them. But I think it's interesting to note just like one that it does a really, really good job of what it was intended to do. And two, that, you know, we may see more of a shift going forward of utilizing their, their platform in a way that can push Hollywood in new directions. And of course, you know, I don't know what the awards will look like, you know, coming forward with the Me Too movements with time, uh, Time's Up, if that continues to be integrated or no. if that goes on to the Academy Awards ceremony. But the form of an award space can really accomplish a lot in terms of yeah, pushing no. movements. And they're trying to integrate themselves there. And I think it's progressive and a new direction that I haven't seen looking at the long, long history of what they've been doing as an organization. Well, and it's still the idea of, you know, going back to the idea of Capra wanting is saying like, well, we're just going to cancel the Oscars. Now they're not going to cancel the Oscars, but it's the idea of the Oscars being this thing, like you said, rather than being uh, reflective, it's like, no, we're going to use this and the visibility of it. We will actually use that to incentivize uh, Hollywood to change and maybe boost that a little bit. And while, you know, I, 
a question is asked and then it quickly jumps to a fever pitch. But at the same time, I don't care that much <laughs> because I like seeing movies from other perspectives. And if the Oscars are willing, if the Oscars are going to make a change and it allows me to see movies from people that I wouldn't get to otherwise, go ahead. Like that excites me. And it's, it's like a good use of the Oscars. Um, <laughs> I always enjoy the Oscars and I, and I feel like it's, it's important in so far as it, in the same way that lists are like top 10 lists or something like that, because people could be like, well, here's, here's something and I can, I can look at this and it's, it's like, like a big televised Buzzfeed article. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> no, that's the golden globes. Oh, that's right. um, but, uh, and so I do think that they, they, it has some level of function that, and then in the abstract sense, it suggests that quality is some quality exists in art and it should be acknowledged if not complete, if not rewarded. But that's yeah. my view. I, I mean, I think that quality in the Academy Awards kind of fall into a really gray area. And yeah. it's, I mean, I think it's frequently more about successful PR campaigns, which yeah. I'm not criticizing. I worked in PR for a while. I, was, I mean, I was terrible as a, working in PR, but like <laughs> I had so much respect for the game that I couldn't do. Yeah. Um, but like they're skilled like they're these are brilliant people and like kudos to them and like i love following the campaigns because i know how brilliant those people are mm -hmm. um i mean I, I just to kind of play with like opening new doors like last year with nothing like moonlight has ever won before like just not just in terms of diversity but in terms of like small story like that that's so personal and intimate and I mean, I think that that's what's exciting about like what the Academy can do potentially in terms of, of creating change. No one really knows what like I don't I can't do any like realistic predictions right now of what's going to go into what could potentially win. Yeah. Nor do I think I have the authority, but there's it opens the door for like a different wave of films to go into the system that there is a space for them now and that there's incentive based off of the new pool for producers to have those types of films um, be pushed and yeah, that kind of thing. Because, you know, a few years ago, it was probably that much harder to get a movie like Moonlight Greenlit mm -hmm. because Moonlight, Moonlight Greenlit, Greenlit is fun well to say. Um, it's a fun child's game. <laughs> but like, uh, yeah, but if then you can go, you know, if independent producers can or independent filmmakers can go to money people and say that here's a movie like moonlight with yeah. hardly anybody famous yeah. in it and made for this small amount of money. I don't know what the budget was. I don't know. That's very low, smaller than La La Land, let's yes. say. Um, but, uh, that, that kind of movie could get that sort of claim and that kind of attention mm -hmm. is, is great yeah. for that type of movie. If we all want to look at the screener sitting on the table right now, which is the Florida project, yeah. you know, that's a small film and yes, it's got like Willem Dafoe and stuff, but like, it's a small film made by a lesser known director for right. very little money. An indie film with just Willem Dafoe, like right. The, 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 five, ten years ago, there's no. Caleb Landry movie. Jones is in it for about three minutes. That's true. But uh, and, and I think it's arguable whether there would be any kind of campaign at all for Florida Project beyond supporting actor, if not for Moonlight last year. As far as like, not that it's yeah. a diversity thing, although it's it is its main character is a is a little girl. Um, but yeah, I, uh, it excites me. I remember Josh, you and I, when Moonlight won, we were very excited about it. And you said like, nothing is, no, nothing is won like that. I think we traced all the way back to Marty, 
Marty being maybe the, the closest, closest film to yeah. Moonlight as far, but it already <laughs> had success on TV. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And so like even it had more prestige and more stuff connected to it than Moonlight, which just seemed to come out of left field, but it was very exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But, and I mean, and who knows what will, how it will actually, things will be affected in the longer, but I see in terms of what's happening, it's just there being a lot of great potential based off of these economic systems that I spend so much of my time thinking about. (laughs) But there is great potential in terms of how the Academy in its position can actually potentially affect change. Yeah. Who knows if it's actually possible, but from a theoretical abstract standpoint, maybe. (laughs) Which is what we're all about in academia and on this podcast. That's what we do. (laughs) I I am... I tend to focus on piles of papers and what they tell yeah. me, but you know, <laughs> yeah, it's how I can, it's how I can talk about, Oh, the reason I like the Oscars is that, the, is that they acknowledge there's the concept of quality, whether they actually reward it is another issue, but yeah. it at least acknowledges that it exists. Like that's the, that's what I can cling to, uh, in moments like this. Um, but we've been going for a while, so I think we should probably, uh, probably end. Um, you're always welcome back next year because there's always more Oscars to talk about. <laughs> um, but uh, not to mention there's all kinds. Hell, we could do an entire episode about the McCarthy era and the impact oh, yeah. on the Oscars. Well, yeah. I, just I will have spent another year in the archive. But God knows what I will have discovered. I mean, this is, that's where I'm union stuff is just where my mind is at right now. But like um, I all sorts of things keep coming up. Well, keep us posted. <laughs> keep us posted. Now, when I picture an archive, I picture either the big warehouse at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark or like a, a, a basement, like poorly lit, but just with like just rows of books. And it's just very, it's quiet and dark and potentially haunted. Are archives like that? <laughs> um, I mean, if you're like a scholar, you're sitting at a table in a like nice, like room temperature room and like there are boxes and you open the boxes and you have gloves on and like oh, you right. don't destroy anything. And like in the background, there's, you know, the the spaces for where the documents are kept are supposed to be at like certain room temperatures for what mm. will be best. But a lot of it's, you know, it's like a library, not that dissimilar and like no. highly organized more so than you'd see mm. in, in any library because the materials are so vital and important and you can't let anything go wrong with them, that kind of thing. Mm. But like in terms of like when I'm sitting somewhere, it's just like a reading room. And like, there's a specific area I have to stay in okay. and like, don't, you know, don't destroy it. And like, now if you, that's sneeze, very if you were to sneeze on one of these documents, like how much trouble would you get in? <laughs> I, I feel like there'd be like people crying around. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> wow. archivist, like, just destroyed everything. <laughs> um, all right. Well, we're going to go ahead and, and leave it there. I believe next week, I think next week, David is back from Sundance and we'll be talking about uh, some of the stuff that he saw. Uh, but in the meantime, feel free to go to battleshippretention.com and check out our general uh, end of the year coverage. Um, various contributors uh, have started posting their top tens, uh, their tops 10, as we call it, because uh, we're stupid. Um, but anyway, uh, And then do check out the BP uh, nominations. There's some uh, fun inclusions there. Uh, 
And I think that is about it. Feel free to leave a comment uh, in the, on this episode uh, on the website. Uh, in the meantime, you can uh, email me, Tyler, at com. You can follow me on Twitter, at Tyler, Tyler Pretension. And you can follow Josh on Twitter. At the Josh Long. At the Josh Long. There is no other. There are a, there's a of. Josh Long. Yeah. But he's not he that important. Care. Yeah, he's got like 15 followers. Yeah. Um, can people find you or your work <laughs> online anywhere? Um, I, I don't have much of a social media presence. I have uh, there's a paper that I've had published that's similar to what I was talking about in the Media Industries Journal. Um, I have another article that's coming out later this year, and eventually there's going to be a book. <laughs> you know, once I like finish my doc, I, I finish my dissertation, and then and it's like this thing, this hundreds of pages on the Academy Awards, and then you like go and see like, hey, publishers, do you want to make a book out of this? And then like a ways after that, then they make you have a book. <laughs> <laughs> It sounds like a very arduous process. Yeah, but at some point there will there will there will be more information on. Doesn't UCLA have a press? There. Can't they publish books? Yeah, they do. They should do it. Yeah, but you have to like write hundreds of pages nah, first. It I only guess takes so. like like years of digging, and then years of writing, and then years of editing. <laughs> So here's what I like about podcasting. I'm going to stop recording, <laughs> add theme music and po and schedule it for a few days from now. And it'll take a grand total of 10 minutes at most. That's what I like. Take I don't use yeah, Exactly. I think you're so great. Thank yeah. you for accepting me. If, if anyone wants to talk to me, they can have my email. <laughs> I don't have any social media presence, uh, but yeah, I'm happy to. Email that. me Tyler at battleshippretension.com and I will forward the email along because <laughs> sure. uh, you don't know the freaks that listen to this okay. thing. You don't want to give them your email address. Yeah. Um, but okay. <laughs> thank you, everybody. Monica, thank you so much for being here. This was a lot of fun and very informative. Thank yeah. you for having me. This right. was fun. <laughs> All right. Josh, thank you for filling in for David. Uh, yeah. You know, you've more than filled his shoes. Oh, good. So you do have very long feet. That's the, that's the thing. And he just has like these little hooves. He's got those, uh, yeah. <laughs> he has hooves. Yeah. Well, but they're like hoof size. You know, they're not, they're not actual I think hooves. There's something wrong with you. You know, he was playing a loot the other day. Look, the point is, uh, David's not here and Josh is. So, okay. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye.